The text for our meditation this morning is really about the center verse of what Celeste read just a few moments ago. Verse 11, probably the most familiar passage from the whole book of Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. On the basis of these words of Scripture and in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through whom we have forgiveness and therefore a future, my sisters and brothers in faith. Everyone has a past. Last week, Pastor Nick had you look in the mirror. Through the words of Scripture, you saw that you are not only people who sin, but you are sinful people. Theologically, we call that original sin. It's that sin we have inherited. It's passed down to us. Before we're born, as David said, when I was just being conceived, I was already in sin. Today, we're going to take another look into the mirror. And we're going to see how that sinfulness has played out and continues to play out in our lives. We'd love to look into the mirror and see that we were the fairest of them all. I couldn't help but, and I don't always watch TV commercials, but this one caught my eye because it's the queen sitting in the front seat of a car looking at a mirror, and the AT&T guy, I guess that's who he is, looks and the mirror starts telling him and thinks, he says, no, 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 no. I don't want that. Well, that's the way we are too. We don't want to hear it. We want to see reflected in that mirror the good we've done, the benevolence we've shared, the compassion we've shown. We want to see all that good, and yet when we're really honest, when we really take a look into the mirror of our life, we see sin. Oh yeah, we try. We try to excuse it. We try to pass it off, to blame others, to rationalize. But if we're really going to take an honest look into the mirror, we're going to see sin. And some of that sin continues to haunt us, to bother us, to come to come back upon us. It makes us feel guilty or ashamed or even fearful. I'm somewhat surprised by how many times good Christian people have expressed the fact that they're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of standing before the throne of God. 
It's because of what's happened in the past. One time in a Bible class, I was talking about forgiveness and really kind of uh, into it, had said a lot. And as class was over, a lady walked past me and she said, that was really nice, but it doesn't apply to me. She thought she had done something so terrible in her life. When she looked at the mirror, she just saw that one evil. She saw that sin. You know, we started that way as little kids. We put our hands on our hips and we said, I want to do it my way. And that's nothing new. That was Adam and Eve. They wanted to do it their way. They had a little prompting, of course. And nowadays, we see people going their own way, doing their own thing, and we think, wow, things are really bad. And yet, the theme of the book of Judges was, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Nothing has changed. Sin is still there. We look in the mirror and we see this sinfulness. And it makes us feel unworthy, inadequate, even afraid. And of course, we're not alone. The Bible is filled with examples. Jacob, who lied and cheated to get what God had promised him. And Moses, who murdered a man. And then when God calls him to go to do the job that he has for him, Moses makes every excuse in the book. And after God deals with all these excuses, then Moses said, well, why don't you just send somebody else? And David, who had everything, still commits adultery and then covers it up with a murder. And Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, who admits, I am a man of unclean lips. And Jeremiah, the one who wrote our text for today, when God called him, he said, I'm not up to this. I'm inadequate. I can't do this. I don't know how to talk. And I'm just a child. There are so many. We have in the New Testament, Matthew, who was a tax collector. And Paul, who persecuted Christians. All of these. And yet, why do we know them? We don't know them primarily because of their sinfulness. We know them because of what they did, because God used them. And so a modern-day example. Oh, there's Matthew. Oh, yeah, okay. Do you know this lady? Johnny Erickson Tata. What's her past? Now she was a nominal Christian. 
And then when she was 17 years old, she had a diving accident in which she became a quadriplegic. And she was angry with God. She went into depression. She tried to self-medicate. I've often talked about Johnny because I think she's such an example of, of Christian faith. And so before I wanted to talk about her today, I kind of checked online and I found something uh, kind of amazing. It's her reflections on the 50th anniversary of her diving accident. And she writes this because she has just gotten a letter from a young man, name happens to be Tommy, and he has just become a quadriplegic. And she writes, like Tommy, I was once the 17-year-old who wretched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. What a difference time makes, as well as prayer, heavenly-minded friends, and deep study of God's Word. All combined, I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. But whenever I try to explain it, I hardly know where to begin. However, if I were to nail down the suffering's main purpose, I'd say it's the textbook that teaches me who I really am, because I'm not the paragon of virtue I'd like to think I am. Here's a lady who looked into the mirror. She didn't like at first what she saw, but she came to grips with it. She dealt with it. She found a way. Jeremiah is writing to people who are living in exile. He's talking to these people because they're paralyzed. Paralyzed with fear. What are we supposed to do? Now, of course, we ought to look back and say, if they looked into the mirror, where, why were they there in exile? They were there because they had abandoned God. They had walked away from God. They didn't need God. They didn't see that sinfulness of themselves when they looked in the mirror. But now they're confronted with it because they've been carried into exile. What are they going to do? And that's the question, isn't it? What are we going to do? They're paralyzed because they don't know. They're not sure what they should do. 
And Jeremiah says, build houses, settle down. Make the best of the situation that you're in. Even, he says, pray for your captives. You know, Jesus said something not far from that. He said, love your enemies. Our enemies don't have to be people. They may be the things that entangle us, the things that entrap us, the things that keep getting the best of us in our lives. Pray about that. And that's when, after Jeremiah says to the people, don't be discouraged, don't despair, don't give up. Then he writes, for I have a plan for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God has a plan. Johnny continues. The core of God's plan is to rescue me from sin and self. And I like this next line. And to keep rescuing me. The Apostle Paul calls it the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. 1 Corinthians 15. And then she says, I'm in constant need of saving. My displaced hip and scoliosis are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels, driving me down the road to Calvary, where I die to sin that Jesus already died for. Sure, I have a long way to go before I am who God destined me to be in glory, but thankfully my paralysis keeps pushing me to strive to reach for that heavenly prize. Back in the 70s, a Bible study friend shared 10 little words that set the course for my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He explained it this way. God allows all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. God hated the torture, injustice, and treason that led to the crucifixion. Yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way, God hates spinal cord injury, yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in you as well as in others. Like Joseph, when he told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What is it that paralyzes you? What is it? causes you such fear. God has a plan for you. Plans to prosper you. 
and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. We've seen that plan play out on a cross through Jesus Christ. And yet we all have this past that stares us in the face when we look in the mirror. But you see, in Jesus Christ, that's all gone. That's all away. But God can use what happens in the past, as he did with Johnny and with all those biblical characters I mentioned. God can use that past. Look at St. Paul. He was out there persecuting Christians. And he thought he was doing what was right. I mean, the religious leaders of the day were behind him, supporting him. And then Jesus confronted him. He made him take a hard look at himself in the mirror. And then he used Paul's training as a Pharisee, Paul's passion for whatever he got involved with to make him the greatest missionary that the earth has ever seen. But Paul always knew that it wasn't him, that it was Jesus in him. In Philippians, he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That passage always reminds me of a wonderful set of books that I read some years ago by Jan Karen called the Mitford series. It's about an Episcopal priest named Father Tim Cavanaugh and his wife Cynthia. Whenever they face difficulty, whenever they face hardship, whenever something's going wrong, whenever they feel inadequate or powerless to do what needs to be done because they aren't worthy, because they are sinful human beings, they quote this passage to each other. They refer to this passage as the passage that never fails. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Seeing that our whole life is in his hands. Those hands that were stretched out and nailed to a cross. That's the assurance of our future. Hope is in Jesus Christ. Our future is assured because in him and through him, all those sins, all those things that want to stare at us, glare at us, make us paralyzed, make us afraid. They're all gone. There's none there. When you stand before the judgment throne of God, there's nothing to condemn you. St. Paul says that in Romans chapter 12, there is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, with St. Paul, we can say, I can do all things through Christ. I am forgiven my past. Even the things that I continue to do wrong this day, when I know better, it's all forgiven in Jesus Christ. And so, 
as I conclude this morning, one more piece of advice from the scripture. Probably the most important thing that I could say in the fewest words is just the first part of this passage, and I would put a Y in front of the hour, fix your eyes on Jesus. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep looking to him. He has you in his hands. Those hands that were nailed to a cross. He can continue to use you despite your past. And even looking at your present with its faults and its failings, its trials and tribulations, its heartaches and hardships, we can keep going because we know that he is with us and that our future is secure in and through him. In Jesus' name, amen.